One of the beautiful things about trademarks, especially in licensing agreements, is that you have what's called quality control provisions. So for any reason, you can actually stop somebody from using your brands, including if they, you know, make your brand look bad, if they end up being racist per se, right? It doesn't have to be like they, they just infringe upon your mark. If, if, they, if they start cursing or if you find them or if they are found drunk in an alleyway and that makes public news, you can stop them from using your brand, right? Um, because, of the, because of the association, it could dilute or um, bring down the value of your trademark. So imagine if Black Lives Matter was able to stop certain organizations, including organizations that were not necessarily aligned with their mission from utilizing the term Black Lives Matter. You're listening to the Transcend Podcast. I'm your host, Asha Wilkerson, an attorney by training and an educator at heart. This podcast is all about empowering you to build a business and leave a legacy. Here's the thing. The wealth gap in America is consistently increasing. And while full-time entrepreneurship is not for everyone, even a side hustle can change your financial landscape if you're intentional about using your business to build wealth. I've run my own law firm for over 10 years. And in that time, I've helped countless California businesses go from idea to six figures. On this podcast, we talk about what it truly takes to build a sustainable business and find financial freedom. Let's dive in. Hey, y'all, welcome back to another episode of Transcend the Podcast. I'm super excited about this episode that you are about to listen to. We are here with one of my favorite colleagues, Rukayatu Tajani, who is a trademark attorney and founder, chief creator, and chief esquire officer of Firm for the Culture. Ms. Tajani founded Firm for the Culture after years of serving as an intellectual property attorney in the Silicon Valley office of the top litigation firm in the country. Firm for the Culture was born out of Ms. Tajani's passion for the law, social impact, and social entrepreneurship, and strategically scaling to create sustainable change. Drawing on her extensive experience as an intellectual property attorney in the Silicon Valley office of the top litigation law firm in the country, Ruki provides extensive detail-oriented and comprehensive trademark education strategy and application services to a host of social entrepreneurs and innovative founders at accessible flat fee prices. Ms. Tajani is a proud Nigerian-American first-generation professional from the projects of Brooklyn and is a graduate of the UC Berkeley School of Law and a member of the New York and California State Bars. She loves to cook, sing, and hike, and I cannot wait for you to listen to this awesome conversation. So stay tuned. All right. Well, welcome to the Transcend Podcast. How are you doing today? Hi, Asha. I'm doing pretty well. I'm excited to talk with another boss in the field. How are you? I am great. I am great. Thank you so much. So as you know, this podcast is all about empowering black folks and brown folks, breaking down the law, breaking down business, breaking down finances so that we can build a business and leave a legacy. And we've talked about intellectual property and trademarks a little bit before, but I specifically invited you on because one, your firm name is awesome, (laughs) Firm for the Culture. And two, you specialize in trademarks. You you focus exclusively in trademarks. So can you tell us a little bit about like, what does that really mean? And, you know, who are the clients that you look to help? Yeah, no, for sure. So Firm for the Culture is a virtual law firm, an innovative virtual law firm, specifically designed to help social entrepreneurs and diverse founders protect their brand 
brands as they scale their impact. And a lot of what we do is informed by my story, right? And I'm sure you've already introduced it, but I want to share a little bit about it. I'm a proud first-generation college graduate, proud first-generation law school graduate from the projects of Brooklyn, New York, went to UC Berkeley School of Law. And after a few years of becoming an attorney, I wanted to quit the law entirely. And that's because as the first in my family to attend law school, I really didn't know what I didn't know about navigating that space. So that along with just the abysmal lack of diversity made me want to quit. But mentors and friends and some divine intervention, I'd say, convinced me not to quit. So I ended up staying in the field and joining the number one litigation firm in the country as an IP attorney in the Silicon Valley. And I loved it. I loved you know, reviewing cases and litigating cases regarding copyright, trademark, patent, trade secrets. But again, when I was in these meetings, specifically with startups and VCs and the darlings of the Silicon Valley, I too saw that it was just simply lacking in diversity, diversity in background, diversity in thoughts, diversity in just the amazing contributions that we as black and brown folk make to the culture consistently. So I left and I took a leap of faith. And Firm for the Culture really doubles as our love language to the culture, to creativity, and to folks who are in social impact. So essentially, it allows us to really geek out over things like, you know, trademarks and Meg Thee Stallion or LeBron James and intellectual property. And even the dance craze is going on, you know, uh, with TikTok right now, how Black creatives are kind of protesting. It allows us to geek out over things like that and also, you know, provide um, what's oftentimes seen as an esoteric field of um, legal information to people in a innovative and creative and accessible way so we can help them understand the importance of their intellectual property as they continue to make their mark on the world. So that's a little bit about who we serve and who we are. Yeah, I absolutely love that. I love your story. I can relate to just having felt burnout and feeling like, you know, firm culture is cool and then also really not cool, you know, and just having experiences myself when I was representing folks in criminal court and I'm standing in the line of attorneys and the sheriff comes over to me and says, you know, can I help you as if I'm not supposed to be there? And I know exactly what's going on and I'm telling him, no, you cannot help me. And just, yeah, that, that fit, like, even when you have the skill, it is important, like the community really does matter, who you surround yourself with matters, because it's more than just having the skill, it's also feeling like, not just that you belong, but also that it's not an affront to your essence to be in this position. Absolutely. Absolutely. Not only do we deserve a seat at the table, Black creatives, black, Brown creatives, diverse creatives deserve a seat. And also, you know, the means to monetize the creativity that they're contributing to the culture. Like, I think, I mean, I say this unapologetically in any space that I'm in, I think that Black and Brown creatives are the most creative people. We we set the trend. We, we provide much of what the United States is pumping out to other countries around the world. So it, it, it behooves us to really take the steps to protect our creativity as we make our mark on the literal world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I absolutely agree. So before I get into like TikTok, I do, you had mentioned that and I was thinking that before you, before you said it, but can you just explain to the audience, to the listeners exactly what can be trademarked? Like, what is a trademark? What does it protect? Yeah. So a trademark at its core is a word, a phrase, a logo, or a design that's used to differentiate your business from others. So that's a lot of everything and nothing at all, right? So let's think about a specific example. 
I love coffee. (laughs) And if I don't make my morning cup of coffee, I may go to Starbucks. And when I'm at Starbucks, I get the cup with the green, you know, logo on it. And when I'm walking outside, somebody may look at my cup and without even tasting the product that's in my cup, will know in a split second that my, that the product that's in my cup comes from an organization that has its headquarters in Seattle, Washington. And they may, you know, make decisions as to whether I'm a good person or whether I should be supporting that organization all based on the product that's in my hand. They also know just by looking at the product that's in my hand that it doesn't come from McDonald's because it doesn't have the goals and arches, which is McDonald's trademark. They also know that it's not from Pete's because the cup is not brown or that it's not from Dunkin' Donuts because the cup doesn't have the orange and green double D logo. So they know all of that in a split second simply by looking at the cup that's in my hand. So that's really what a trademark is. It is the mark of an organization that can really dictate customer loyalty, that can really dictate profit and value of the company, and that can really determine if a person purchases said like good or service or decides to purchase a competitor's good or service. Trademarks can also protect logos, slogans. Sometimes I also say 3D trademarks such as trade dress. If we look at the red under the Louboutin or Louboutin heels, that's also federally protected. Sounds like the 20th century fox sound like that sound is also federally protected. Trademarks also protect colors like Tiffany blue, that nice Robin blue that's sold in association with jewelry. So trademarks can protect pretty much the different faces of a business's brand. And another example, Nike, you know, trademarks protect the name Nike. It protects the slogan, just do it. And it also protects the swoosh symbol, all three different faces of the same business or brand. Yeah, that's super helpful. So, you know, I think people often think about just a logo, but I really want people to know exactly what uh, trademark and then just IP in general protects or gives you rights to solidifies your rights to because as we mentioned you know coming back to TikTok and, and to this this industry now or this time now where creatives are really celebrated and how black and brown folks especially black folks in America have really perpetuated culture and distributed culture let me rephrase that we have created culture and it is distributed by the United States out to other parts of the world, right? We're so rarely credited for the creativity that we have. So I really am grateful to have this conversation, not that I have all of the answers, but to get people to start thinking about what are you doing already that you may be able to protect, solidify the rights to, and license to make some money off of, right? You don't, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I love that like we're discussing that because this is not new. People taking, you know, dance moves and other creative creations from black and brown creators. And in fact, a similar story is what prompted me to start Firm for the Culture in the first place. So I was sitting in my beautiful, shiny office in the Silicon Valley. And I remember coming across uh, a video game, I believe it was Fortnite. And they took like, I think they took the Milliwop or they took all these dances that were by us without compensating the the originators of said art. Now, there's a question as to whether dance moves can be federally copyrighted or whether it can be 
registered at the United States Copyright Office. But in any event, what it stirred in me was definitely a sense of rage (laughs) and anger over the idea that something that we took time, effort, and energy, and to some extent finances, to really push into the world could simply be taken from us. And then in the trademark space, there are definitely brands that are not necessarily owned by Black and Brown folks, but have the Black and Brown kind of cultural underpinning. I remember like there's brands like The Glow Up that's not owned by a Black or Brown organization and other brands that are not owned by Black or Brown organizations. And trademark law kind of protects that because trademark law doesn't privilege origination, it privileges use in a commercial manner. So even if we have a brand that goes viral or a hashtag that goes viral, unless you stick that word on a shirt, put it on a podcast, sell it with some water, sell it with a soda or something, it's not going to be federally protected. So really having the conversation to, to, to kind of push creatives to understand how their creative contributions to the culture can be protected is really why Firm for the Culture came into being today. So I love what's going on at TikTok. I love the fact that people aren't dancing to, you know, to, although I love Meg Thee Stallion's, you know, new song, That Girl or That Stuff. <laughs> I love it. I love the fact that people are like taking a, you know, a virtual seat and saying, no, we're not going to contribute unless we get adequately compensated. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, that's even a shift too, right? I mean, I think especially in the arts and the creative industry, there's this belief that permeates a lot of artists that, well, I'm just going to be a starving artist. There's nothing else for me to do because I know plenty of musicians. I know plenty of dancers. I know plenty of playwrights who are fantastic, but never earned any money. And so I think that people don't even think about how they can monetize their craft because it's just not being done in our communities at the level that it's being done in white community. And we just don't know. I feel like we just don't know. So I have a friend who's, who's a writer, published author and all that stuff. And maybe she's like, I think I'm just going to be a starving author. I'm like, mm, no, let's actually like, look at how the you- devil is a liar. <laughs> okay. So I hope she's listening to this podcast. Not on my watch. <laughs> right. Absolutely. And, and let me tell you all too, who are listening that I remember reading this contract. Uh, no, no, no. I was talking to a web designer and she wanted to do a business consultation with me. And so we were talking about her practice and she designed websites for her clients, but she retained the rights to the website. So she basically created them for her clients and then licensed the site to the client. And if the client wanted to purchase it later to be able to change an update, they needed to pay her like, I don't know, an extra $3,000 to get it. And I was shocked but I was also like, wow, that's like, that's what people are really out here doing. And that's kind of, I mean, I was going to say it's genius. <laughs> it's definitely one way to do business, but it just got me thinking about what is all the stuff that we give away or that we only make people pay for one time, but they get to continue to use over and over and over again. And how can we start to think about this is the product that I have made. Let me think about it earning money or generating revenue for me for the next 10 years. Absolutely. I love that because when it comes to monetizing our intellectual property, IP is generational wealth, right? So one of the big questions that we often get is how do I actually monetize my IP? And I like to talk about 
One of the tried and true examples of yesteryear, like Jack Daniels, we see that drink all over in the supermarkets, you know, at the club, what have you. And it's a famous whiskey that's amassed more than $2.7 billion in its lifetime. And it actually came into being with significant help, if not the absolute work of a slave, the slave nearest Green, right, who taught Jack Daniels everything that he knew. Yet Green is not, he was the, you know, proverbial definition of starving artist. He was starving. He was owned, right? Like he received neither compensation nor con- nor credit for this, this contribution that is still playing out over 250 years later. And that type of story is not limited to yesteryear, right? You know, large corporations, they run to the USPTO to trademark and gain ownership over brands that we created. And one of the things I like to call it, frankly, is trademark gentrification because they they take our brands, they make it pretty and they sell it without giving us like the full credit for it, um, even though we provided that adequate goodwill. And then they may send a lot of us a cease and desist to stop using it, which they can very much do because that's what trademark law protects. So again, it privileges not necessarily the the people who create the the invention or the brand or the logo or what have you. It protects those who use it in a a commercial manner. So that's really, again, why we're going into this work and informing people of how valuable their contributions to the culture are are one of the things that we say at Firm for the Culture is when you protect the brand, you protect the culture. So let's protect the culture. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just thinking of a couple of different examples of um, you know, how a trademark or intellectual property can be valuable, even if the company isn't yet operating in the black, meaning the, the company may not be profitable itself, but the brand may have some value that is tied to, but separate. So um, I was talking to a friend of mine, another intellectual property attorney, and he was telling me this story about this company, this donut shop that was star bread shop, something like that, that was starting up in San Jose. And, you know, as IP attorney, he went and protected the intellectual property. And there was a company from Canada that had a New York attorney that reached out to him and said, Hey, we're in a similar space. We really like the brand. We want to buy your trademark from you. And the company was getting ready. The San Jose company hadn't yet started, but had already registered their trademark. And then because of COVID, they couldn't get the footing that they wanted. But that told the attorney, my friend, okay, let me go and expand the protections because there's some interest over here and we're not going to sell yet but we're going to build this company with the idea that this brand, this trademark is valuable and put some energy into that so that if one day they want to exit because maybe it's profitable, right? Or maybe they can keep the same product and change the name. Then they have another stream of income that they can bring to the table. Absolutely. And to that, I say legal zoom could never, could never, ever, <laughs> ever. We try to tell y'all. Legal Zoom could never like that is the type of strategy that a really good and culturally competent attorney can help you really roll out. So when we're engaging our clients at Firm for the Culture, we're not doing it simply with an eye towards getting people registered. We're doing it with an eye towards helping people monetize their intellectual property through license agreements, assign their intellectual property through assignment agreements, you know, have a federal underpinning to sue somebody in federal court 
court all around the country if they need to sue copycats in federal court. And, and also like, you know, parse the large parts of their application. If they want to, if they want to license, you know, shoes to one company and license shirts to another company, they can do that because we had the foresight at the beginning before we even filed the application to determine what could happen if a brand like theirs um, scale significantly. Yeah. I, I appreciate that explanation because people ask all the time, well, can't I just go to LegalZoom one to form their business and two to get their IP? And I always tell people no, right? Because even though there's so much stuff that's on Google and LegalZoom will make you think that you are a pseudo attorney, the attorneys have actually studied this stuff and not only tell you or not only fill out the application, but like you just mentioned, create the strategy behind it. And the last thing you want to do probably is fill out an application and be so narrowly cited because you only know what you know, and then miss out on all this other opportunity that someone who is an expert in this field could have helped you capitalize on. So I agree. I agree. And do your I, research, use your experts. Exactly. And I tell clients and I, you know, I would be remiss if I, you know, acted like no one could theoretically be successful, right? If you're, if your sole goal is to get a registration at the USPTO, then you can likely be successful. People have, many people have used LegalZoom to get a registration, but it ultimately comes down to what your, what your overall strategy is. So I've had a lot of clients who've messed up, you know, they're filing at LegalZoom by significantly narrowing down the goods and services that they wanted to sell. And they only based it on what they were selling currently. So a lot of people who come out with, who come out with clothing brands, the first thing that they're selling is t-shirts, right? But they don't really, but they don't, but, but they forget that they could also put in that class sneakers. They could put in that class scarves. They could put in that class hats, gloves, jackets, coats. And that's where you start talking about the generation of wealth. That's where you start getting into licensing agreement and you could probably, you know, license your jackets to you, to Uniqlo and license your sneakers to Nike. And so at all because, all from that one category of goods and services. And that's the conversation that we engage with our clients when they come to Firm for the Culture. We ask them the dream. We ask, we ask them, what are you going to do in the next few years? Let's check the entire universe of, of, of possibility. And then from there, strategize as to what classes or what industries to go forward with before you even file that before you even file the application at the USPTO, because once you file it, it's public. And the good, the bad, and the ugly can be publicly disclosed. But when we're having our strategy session, it's all protected by attorney-client privilege communications. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's so important. Again, just tapping back into generational wealth, which is exactly what the point of this podcast is. And the point of, you know, both of our firms is trying to, are trying to help people create generational wealth. So you're not thinking about just right now, you're thinking about down the line, right? Like even think about like Hilton brand hotels, you know, it's a brand, there's an extra, it's a, you have a, expectation in terms of the quality, the experience. And those, you know, Paris Hilton, I don't even know why I'm thinking about her, but Paris Hilton <laughs> is not working in the hotels, right? Her grandfather was the one who created it, but her, that his children and grandchildren and children's children's children are going to benefit from the foresight that Conrad Hilton had to build this empire, which started with a hotel, right? And your dream, your business is not too small to do that with. So definitely seek wise counsel, find the people that need to be in your orbit and and let them help you dream bigger. And it doesn't mean you have to take all the steps right away, but at least if you have a plan, you'll know what you need to do 
next to get to where you're trying to go. Absolutely. Absolutely. Definitely think about that. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So we're going to touch on this subject, which um, neither one of us know that much about, but just thinking about the NCAA and the new rules about um, college athletes being able to use their likeness. How important do you think this is specifically for black folks? Because there's so many black athletes that are exploited in school and beyond. Yeah. Like, you know, at the time of this recording, Simone Biles just bowed out of the Olympics, right? And then you have Naomi Osaka and you have Shakari Richardson all receiving, you know, all experiencing the good and bad and the ugly with being a, a, a international celebrity athlete, right? And one of the things, even though I would say this is not within um, trademarks, one of the things that I just started thinking of as these athletes get bigger is understanding that just because they can make money off their likeness doesn't mean that every form or version of their likeness is theirs to own, right? And that goes, and that goes particularly to, to, to copyrights, particularly if our athletes are famous. So I, I remember recalling like Justin Bieber was reportedly sued by a paparazzi um, for, a, for uploading a photo of himself to his Instagram. So that kind of goes, that, that's the intersectionality of copyright and, and right to publicity and right to privacy. Like, can, can I, as a photographer, take a photo of you and own that photo and stop you, the subject of the photo, from utilizing the photo? Yes, I can. <laughs> I can. So, so even though your likeness is highly monetizable, understand that paparazzis get paid for a reason by essentially profiting off of your likeness. So what do you do then? I like to say, get the Beyonce effect, control who takes your photos. (laughs) You can control who takes your photos. And also another thing within the realm of, of trademarks, I would say to the extent that you have a famous brand or famous slogan or famous catchphrase that goes with your brand, then definitely take steps sooner rather than later to file the trademark registration. Because at the USPTO, there's been an increasing type of rejection from, um, you know, uh, in the United States over certain brand names that have gotten too famous or quote unquote too commonplace. And that rejection is called the failure to function rejection. And at its core, it stands for the principle that if everyone essentially is allowed to use the mark because it got so famous and commonplace and largely because you failed to protect and police the mark before it got super famous, no one, including you, should be allowed to own the mark. And this has happened to Meg Thee Stallion with Hot Girl Summer and Taco Tuesday with LeBron James and oh, by Cardi B. And it's also happened with Black Lives Matter. You know, um, that mark can't be owned, according to the USPTO, by Alicia Garza, Patricia, Patricia, Patrice Collins, and Alba Tamati, even though they were the originators of the brand back in 2013 after the shooting death of Trayvon Martin, the acquittal of George Zimmerman. So I'm saying that to say, as you continue growing in your celebrity, in your status, if there's a slogan that you use, if there's a, a, a brand that you use, if there are certain colors that you use, those can all be protected with intellectual property and, and speak with wise counsel to, to make sure those things are protected for that generational wealth. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So a few weeks ago, I did an episode with uh, another IP attorney. And we were just talking about what comes first, LLC or IP, right? And 
a lot of people ask that question. A lot of people ask all the time, like, when do I need to form the business? And, or people go to the other side and say, I want to protect all of my ideas. You can't protect an idea. You got to actually have something that is tangible or, or, you know, represents something sort of in motion, in action. But I don't know that it is ever too early. And if you're not sure, go and talk to an intellectual property attorney, a trademark attorney, a copyright attorney, a patent attorney. So at least you have an expert opinion about what the right timing is, because can you imagine now with all the folks with BLM, Black Lives Matter all over their shirts, which is great, but the folks who created it can't monetize that because now it's just a common part of our language. And so it's up for everybody to use. But imagine if they could monetize it and then raise more money for the cause, not even that it has to be something that they are personally benefiting from, and they could if they wanted to, right? But that it is a social movement that could continue to raise money into perpetuity as long as people started kept purchasing, printing and purchasing BLM shirts, BLM signs, that could be sort of almost a passive revenue stream for the organization, for the social cause. And it's not. And not only can it serve as a, you know, sword in terms of monetizing, it can also serve as a shield. So it can stop others from utilizing it. One of the beautiful things about trademarks, especially in licensing agreements, is that you have what's called quality control provisions. So for any reason, you can actually stop somebody from using your brands, including if they, you know, make your brand look bad, if they end up being racist per se, right? It doesn't have to be like they they just infringe upon your mark. If if they if they start cursing or if you find them or if they are found drunk in an alleyway and that makes public news, you can stop them from using your brand, right? Um, because of the because of the association, it could dilute or um, bring down the value of your trademark. So imagine if Black Lives Matter was able to stop you know um, certain organizations, including organizations that were not necessarily aligned with their mission from utilizing the term Black Lives Matter, right? And in fact, that's what could have happened in 2020 after the shooting death, I'm not shooting death, after the death of George Floyd. So because Black Lives Matter did not trademark their brand or attempt to trademark their brand until about six or until about five or six years later, and they got the failure to function rejection. In 2020, another organization called Black Lives Matter Foundation, which is very different from Black Lives Matter Global Network, the real Black Lives Matter, set up a GoFundMe page. And that GoFundMe page was literally set up by a guy from Santa Clarita, California, who has a PO box. And over $4.4 million was misdirected to the wrong Black Lives Matter organization because the original Black Lives Matter organization could not stop from a trademark perspective perspective, the fake Black Lives Matter organization. So just imagine how much money ha- like was essentially lost and how much money like could have gone to the movement to, you know, abolish prisons or abolish the police or set up equitable ways of engaging criminal justice, right? So so that's what we're talking about when we talk about the importance of protecting the brand and protecting the culture. Yeah, absolutely. So we're just we're just flipping the switch, y'all. Like we're we are switching from that scarcity mindset of I don't have enough money, I don't know how to do it to abundance. We're gonna figure it out. You've got experts you know that you can call now. And also just thinking about instead of being just a consumer consumer. How do I become a producer and really own the rights that I have? Whether you have a restaurant or you are a course creator or you are a music producer, let's talk about that for a minute because I think I think some of us know, but we don't really 
truly understand how that works and and who owns the rights to the music, right? I, I always think about, you know, Prince wanting to own his catalog and Michael Jackson wanting to own his catalog and, you know, that being a big fight because what most folks don't know is that usually the record label owns the rights to the music and it's the artist that is getting paid one time up front to produce the song and then the royalties. You think about... I just heard Montel Jordan's This Is How We Do It on the radio the other day. That song has got to be like 30 years old at this point, at least 25 years old, right? And that song is still played. And I'm not sure whether Montel Jordan... Or Baby Got Back or Poison, all of those songs. All of those songs, right? And it's important to make sure that you own your contribution, your art that you put out there so you can keep earning for years and years to come. I was, I guess maybe it was the Isley Brothers and who did, who was that versus with the Isley Brothers and, uh, oh, Earth, Wind & Fire, I think it was, right? And they were talking about on there that one of the Earth, Wind & Fire songs was played, like a, a, a portion of it was played during a halftime, uh, Super Bowl halftime show, right? And one of the Isley Brothers or Earth, Wind & Fire band members was like, did, they, did we give permission for them to use this song? And now, Earth, Wind & Fire has been around for 40, 50 years probably, right? We don't know. So they got on the phone with their manager and got compensation for that, even though it had already aired, already been broadcast, and someone had used just a portion of their song without getting permission and compensation. So Absolutely. I love to hear it. There's definitely power. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And think about, you know, intellectual property rights are rights just like you own your car, just like you, um, I don't know, own your computer, right? A house, right, right. You can gift them to somebody, you can protect them, you can put them into a trust, your business can own them, you can own them personally. They, it's, it's, I'm not telling you that you have to go out and create a bunch of stuff, but what I want you to know is that you, if you are creating whatever it is that you are creating, reach out and talk to an intellectual property attorney to see what the possibilities are for you to license, um, use, sell, and make money off of the content that you are already doing because we're missing a lot of opportunities. And I want all of us to one, have generational wealth, but two, to continue to make money off of the stuff that we have already done because that gets into that passive income. And that's really where you start to build that wealth. I could not agree more. So for folks who would love to reach out to you and uh, take advantage of your services or at least have a consultation, what is the best way for them to find you? Sure. So you can go to firmfortheculture.com. And if you want to book a call with us, firmfortheculture.com forward slash book. And we give out a a lot of free information, a lot of free resources, a lot of free guides. So like to, I want to kind of just touch a little bit on like the LLC versus trademark. It doesn't have to be either or it can be and it can be and right so fun for the culture for instance we take a we our comprehensive searches are really really in-depth so you're talking about weeks if not sometimes months to really understand the comp to really understand whether your mark can go forward at the uspto so even before we file the trademark you can have that conversation to determine if the mark is even one that you can own while you're talking to asha about Forming your LLC. So by the time we file for the trademark, you have your LLC with Asha, you have your trademark application in hand with, with Firm for the Culture, and now you can bring it to the USPTO. So it doesn't have to be 
you know, uh, uh, do I do the LLC first or do I do the trademark first? It can be a, a complimentary conversation. And with that said, um, even before, even if you, you know, even if you don't want to take that step immediately, we do provide a lot of free webinars. So if you go to our website, firmfortheculture.com, sign up for our email, um, sign up for our email list. We provide a free trademark guide to every person who signs up for the email list. And we also inform them as to when we do those free webinars, which include searches at the United States Patent and Trademark Office. We actually teach you how to clear your mark at the USPTO for free, free 99. So definitely sign up. (laughs) Free 99 is always good. You know, get your information, do your research, but you know, make sure you're getting your information from the right folks. Cause I can't tell you how many people have told me, Oh, well, my friend formed this kind of business and I don't think I need to do it. Like you told me, I'm like, okay, well, what is your friend an expert in this? No. And then come to find out the friend has a totally different kind of license that the person does. I'm talking, you know, so all that to say, make sure that you get information from the right people because it will affect your business in the long run. And we want to see you win. Like we don't, we don't benefit if you don't win. We want to see you win. We want to support you along the way. Yes. We very literally do it for the culture. (laughs) Amen. Amen. (laughs) All right, my dear, thank you so much for joining us. For all of you all who are listening, uh, let us know how you feel about this episode. Leave us some questions. We can pop back on and answer. And uh, we will see you in next week's episode. Thank you so much, Asha. I appreciate this. You are welcome. family. I am so thankful that you are here listening to Transcend the Podcast. And I just want to make sure you know the best way to stay in contact with me. And that's through joining my email newsletter. So please head on over to the wilkersonlawoffice.com slash newsletter and join the list. I will tell you everything over there from what my offerings are to bits and pieces of information about how to grow and scale your business to self-coaching all the way to giving you updates on what the new podcast episode is. So don't hesitate. Go do it now. The wilkersonlawoffice.com slash newsletter. Thanks.